Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 106, March 27th to April 2nd, 1863. Last week, we talked about continued action in Tennessee as the Army of the Cumberland continues to probe and then be probed by Confederate cavalry. Both sides are going to continue to sort of jockey for position before the next campaign kicks off. We also talked very briefly about Florida during the war and had a first-hand account of a skirmish near Jacksonville. This week, we're going to continue with our campaigning in North Carolina we mentioned in a previous episode. We will then talk about the bread riots in Richmond, which we foreshadowed during our impressment episode. To close out, we are going to also set up the Vicksburg campaign, which is going to really mark the end of realistic hopes for the Confederacy. Before we get into Vicksburg, though, I do want to mention that there is a Patreon content, and we've mentioned before the memoir reviews have been posted uh, from last month, and then this month was John Singleton Mosby. And here, as we get into April, we're going to move to a movie review, and that's going to be uh, The Horse Soldiers. And I know we have some time before we get there, but episode 109 is actually going to be talking about the events that are actually portrayed in that movie, those being Grierson's raid into Mississippi as part of the general operations against Vicksburg in Grant's successful campaign. So we'll get into that and see just how closely some of these events kind of tie in. And then uh, if that sounds like something that interests you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, those proceeds go toward the general upkeep of the show. Let's start off by getting into what D.H. Hill is up to in the Tar Heel State. So when we last left off, D.H. Hill and his men had failed in their attempt to retake New Bern. On the other side of the peninsula lay the town of Washington, North Carolina, sitting on the Pamlico River. John Foster, who you remember we introduced back in a previous episode, was the Union commander in the area. He would rush to command the northern troops at Washington, which numbered some 1,200 men. Now, fun fact, Washington, North Carolina was actually the first city in the United States to be named in honor of GW, and was a haunt of the pirate Blackbeard, so it has been around for quite some time. Much like New Bern, its proximity to a river gives it importance to maritime commerce, as well as rail traffic further inland. In 1862, it had actually been the site of skirmishing between Confederate and Union troops from North Carolina. I feel like I keep saying it, but there are a good amount of Unionists that are left in the North State. In fact, there is a U.S. North Carolina regiment in the garrison at Washington. Despite having the unit amongst the 1,200, they are indeed outnumbered by the division-sized rebel force. 
Hill would opt to put the town to siege, erecting earthworks of his own and a battery that could cover the river and any resupply or rescue attempt by that route. This siege is actually going to last into April, and there really is not going to be any major headway on behalf of the rebels to take the town. Foster had been able to amp up the defense, and remember that Lee wants to avoid any major casualties. So, it will actually have a positive effect on the overall goals for the Southerners. With the Union forces pinned down under siege, there is opportunity to forge the countryside. As we have mentioned, this is really what is necessary toward the survival of the Confederate forces in the East. Eventually, Foster would actually escape from the siege on the steamer escort under heavy Confederate fire. Relief attempts on the part of the Union were really lackluster, not wishing to pass under the Confederate guns. Foster was able to organize a more concentrated expedition, but by this time DHL had already decided to begin withdrawing his men. There was some skirmishing as the Confederates were pulling out, but no larger-scale engagements. March 30th had begun the siege, with its conclusion coming on April 15th. Casualties on both sides were around 50. While Hill had yet again failed to capture the town, as mentioned, the valuable time for foraging is really the victory here. Additionally, there had been Union raids on the vital rail line connecting Richmond with North Carolina. The siege was able to take pressure off of this focus on the part of the Union. Washington would remain in Union hands until 1864, when it would briefly fall under Confederate control. On April 2nd, we have an event known as the Richmond Bread Riot. This was carried out by women and children of the city of Richmond, of course, mostly the wives and family of soldiers or workers from the Tredegar Iron Works. The protest was brought on for multiple reasons, the primary being the now soaring price of bread. Several factors went into this as the Union noose tightened and transportation issues arose as a result. Obviously, supplies were limited, as was salt, a key commodity of preservation. It's definitely something we don't often think about, I think, in our modern day, salt being a sort of something that sits on the table as opposed to something that's necessary to the preservation of meat, especially, you know, we talked about in the soldier rations episodes how they're eating salt pork, and the reason why it's incredibly salty uh, is so it can be preserved. So on the flip side of that, your salt is probably going more toward that and the war effort than it is on the home front. Of course, there was now the Confederate policy of impressment, which meant that supplies could be seized toward the war effort. The citizenry were not as concerned with battlefield victory as they were with the need to feed themselves. A matron at Chimborazo will describe the letters she read to the soldiers there. This really does paint a picture of the dire situations that many families are in. Almost all of these letters told the same sad tale of destitution of food and clothing, even shoes of the roughest kind being too expensive for the mass or unattainable by the expenditure of any sum in many parts of the country. 
how hard for the husband or father to remain inactive in winter quarters, knowing that his wife and little ones were literally starving at home. Not even at home, for few homes were left. The women refused to continue complying with the outrageous demands which the government placed on its citizens. So that excerpt does give us a good idea of these repetition in terms of reading these letters to the soldiers, and obviously that's probably not what you want to hear, especially if you're wounded. If you're serving in the army, that's one thing, but if you're wounded and you really can't help, and there's a potential that maybe you're going to be crippled in some way for the remainder of your life, and then you really are going to be not as much of a help in that scenario in terms of providing. You know, we mentioned that in a previous episode, how we have these Victorian-style ideals and how the man needs to provide for the family, and we can understand that that would be pretty detrimental to somebody's psyche. We can also kind of flip that into thinking about it another way, that your your primary goal is to also defend the homestead, and if you're not being able to do that when you're away, it's also going to be an issue. While these issues were not unique to the Confederate capital, it was not the easiest place to be. Let us remember, as we have mentioned, I think maybe in an episode previous, that Richmond's population before the war was some 40,000. During the war, the population would increase dramatically to 100,000, which added to the food problems. So, Mary Jackson, being the primary leader of a group of unsatisfied women, gathered in the Oregon Hill neighborhood of Richmond to march on the Capitol. Specifically, they wanted to protest to Governor John Letcher. They would eventually gather at the statue of George Washington, which is still there at the state capitol today. The women would arm themselves with whatever weapons they could grab. It's a picture that very much resembles the women's march during the French Revolution. In case you're not aware, during that revolution, the women of Paris were able to not only murder some royal guards, but also convince, and yes, I made some air quotes there, that King Louis and his family needed to return to Paris from the palace at Versailles. Of course, they never make it back to Versailles, that's really it for them, and we all know what happens to uh, King Louis and Mary Antoinette after that. But we have a first-hand account of the riot in Richmond. We have had a dreadful riot here yesterday, and they are keeping it up today, but they are not near as bad today as they were yesterday. But I will begin at the first. Thursday morning, I went to the office as usual. A few minutes after I got in, I heard a most tremendous cheering, went to the window to see what was going on, but could not tell what it was about. So we all went down into the street. When we arrived at the scene, we found that a large number of women had broken into two or three large grocery establishments and were helping themselves to hams, middlings, butter, and in fact everything they could find. Almost every one of them were armed. Some had a belt on with a pistol stuck in each side. Others had a large knife, while some were only armed with a hatchet, axe, or hammer. As fast as they got what they wanted, they walked off with it. The men, instead of trying to put a stop to this shameful proceeding, cheered them on and assisted them in all their power. So there was indeed some looting on the part of the rioters. Damages were reportedly fairly significant in certain areas. 
Letcher would not meet with the rioters, but the mayor of the city did, with very little success of dispersing the crowd. Jefferson Davis called on the militia and did address the crowd, reportedly throwing coins from his own pockets into the rioters. Eventually, he would pull out his pocket watch and give the protesters five minutes to disperse before the opening of violence on the part of the militia. It was only until four minutes had passed that the protesters would trickle off and then return home. There were some 30 or so arrests in connection with the event. Richmond City Council would respond with further relief efforts, but they would specify that it was only for the worthy poor as opposed to anyone who had participated in the riot. As we said, there are going to be other riots in other places across the South, but Richmond was very large, some accounts saying that almost a thousand participated. This is a great example of the Southern populace becoming irritated at the length and hardships incurred by the war. We have already talked about similar events happening in the North, especially with the seeds of discontent being sown by the Copperheads. Eventually, though, there will be further blowing over, which we will be sure to get to soon enough. This week, we officially begin two campaigns, both with great significance, and we will talk about one of them this week and save the other for an introduction for next episode. In the West, we have the beginnings of the Vicksburg Campaign, and yes, I mean THE Vicksburg Campaign as opposed to the failed attempts. There's always sort of a disagreement of how many actual campaigns Grant launches until he gets to the real one, and there are some sources I've seen that had the number at, say, seven sort of attempts before he gets to the final campaign that eventually results in the capture of Vicksburg. We've kind of glossed over some of the naval operations that the Union has been conducting. David Farragut is still the commander of the blockading fleet, and if we know anything about the southern-born admiral, it is that he is very aggressive. He has been trying to claim Vicksburg for the Union Navy, as opposed to a combined operation with the Army. With Vicksburg gone, Port Hudson would also fold, and the Mississippi River would be open, thus fulfilling the Anaconda Plan. We also very briefly mentioned that David Dixon Porter has taken charge of the River Fleet and the Ironclads formerly of Charles Davis. Davis had been replaced because he had not had as much experience as a combat commander. Despite some early successes, he had fizzled out. Porter had been briefly removed to the east and then removed from command for criticizing McClellan, criticism that may have been well-founded as we have documented before. Porter and Farragut had combined to bombard and then put pressure on Vicksburg. We mentioned the operations against the CSS Arkansas and Farragut's obsession with destroying the Confederate ironclad. But things had not gone well for the Navy or the supporting infantry. Disease had very much been depleting their forces. Remember that the ironclads amongst the other vessels were stifling tin boxes in the summer, which obviously did not go very well toward the comfort of the sailors. Many of these men had been pressed into service anyway. Thus, the naval operations would cease without any real headway. 
We already talked about the action to try to shut off the Red River, which of course was feeding supplies into Vicksburg. If you remember the Indianola, it did not go over too well. Porter, though, was not as interested in this part of the operation. Instead, he would be committed to helping Grant achieve his goal. The Lincoln administration would have rather had him stay put and focus on controlling the Mississippi River. But with Port Hudson and Vicksburg still in Confederate hands, this was going to prove tricky. We need to mention unfortunate fallout of the naval operations. To supplement the Navy, there had been a large amount of escaped slaves who were now employed with menial tasks, as well as manning the boilers of the vessels. With the river levels being less than ideal, the Navy needed to withdraw. As a result, there are many displaced escapees that now had very little in terms of options, which unfortunately included starve or return to servitude. There were many in the Union Army and Navy who were unsympathetic to their plight. Many of the healthier enslaved had been removed by the rich plantation owners as they withdrew further into the southern interior, away from raiding Union forces. On a positive note, there were starting to be amongst other places contraband camps organized to support the refugees. Louis S. Grant was a big proponent of these camps, especially if they were going to be used to produce crops and material for the Union war effort. There's going to be a common theme of assistance from the formerly enslaved who have recently escaped in this campaign, not always being out of kindness though. Guidance through the swamps and bayous will be important, especially when saving Porter's gunboats, which we will talk about next week. It is interesting these camps that start to get organized uh, and they, they go towards supporting the Union Army and Navy and their efforts. And they're also good places as sites of recruitment when the U.S. Colored Regiments start to be put together. Lorenzo Thomas is going to be a big part of that. We'll talk about him in a future episode. Um, but it is, it is good to see this network start to be built. And it's important toward the success of the overall operation. You know, as we mentioned before, uh, the more individuals that can be thrown into support functions or even regiments created that can guard uh, the supply lines, uh, the more combat troops can be on hand to fight in the sieges and battles. So it's definitely a priority of the Lincoln administration, and certainly Grant is going to take advantage of this. One of the things I do want to mention about Grant while I have some time is that he is good at learning from mistakes of previous campaigns. Obviously, supply had been a problem when the raid at Holly Springs ground his movement to a halt. He would want to solve the issue of supply problems, especially considering he had a strong logistical background going back to his experience in the Mexican-American War. His establishments of contraband camps would be going toward these efforts. Grant also would start to conduct a harder style of warfare in northern Mississippi. His troops had been spoiling for a fight. Already there had been harsh treatment of the civilian population, especially when faced with guerrilla operations. As his army had withdrawn back into Tennessee, Grant's soldiers had taken some reprisals out on the populace in order to make sure that Pemberton could not advance further north 
and still be supplied. There was going to be an uphill fight at Vicksburg. Defenses were strong in 1862, but they were improved by the time 1863 rolled around. Much like at Port Hudson, there were many guns that were elevated beyond effective ranges for the Union vessels. This was done in part by Samuel Lockett. Lockett was originally born in Virginia but grew up in Alabama. He had attended West Point and will rise through the ranks to become the chief engineer for the Army of Tennessee. Lockett will then go on to spend some time with the Egyptian Army after the Civil War. In 1863, he will be the chief engineer for the Army of Mississippi. Now the landward and riverward defenses were improved by Lockett, which made the task tougher for the attacking Union forces. I think speaking of learning from mistakes and learning from previous experiences, the action at Chickasaw Bayou certainly led to further creation of earthworks around Vicksburg. That kind of showed that there was some vulnerability there, and it could be exploited by the Union Army. Because of the limited approaches to Vicksburg earlier in the war, it was more relied on that there were not going to be as many avenues of advance by an attacking army, but the necessity of still having strong works uh, becomes much more apparent. And we mentioned this too when we talked in a previous episode how the war kind of evolves and earthworks become that much more important as uh, the war progresses. But what exactly is the plan for the Union Army? Grant had busied the army he was gathering with continued work on the canal Thomas Williams' troops had started in 1862. This would allow for ship travel, bypassing the heavily fortified bluffs at Vicksburg. While Lincoln was interested in this engineering feat, it was not really going to be an efficient way to come at Vicksburg. Confederate artillery was going to be in a good position to crush any unarmored supply vessels that would use the canal. Grant, though, realized he needed to appease the president until he could deliver on victories. But his army was now suffering from disease. In fact, the Confederates are eager to let the Union troops uh, and their support systems uh, toil away at trying to make the canal because it's not really going to be going anywhere. And they're in an area that's uh, relatively swampy, so that always is going to lead toward unclean drinking water. It's going to lead toward mosquitoes that can carry diseases. So it's not going to be the best place to be. Of course, Grant had learned from previous campaigns and put more emphasis on providing aid to these soldiers at Milliken's Bend at Young's Point, but it would not do to remain idle. Returning to Memphis would not be an option. His army was in the field and would remain so until Vicksburg had fallen. Frontal assault was sort of off the table, especially considering just how well it went at Fredericksburg. Grant would devise a bold move that would take his army south, past the rebel batteries, landing them safely so they could start to move overland on the rebel works. It was bold, and the general officers under his command were far from thrilled. I've seen it reasoned that Grant displays good leadership in allowing for feedback from his officers, 
but realizes there is a need for necessary risk in order to succeed. He is going to table his plan to move further south and will explore options to flank Vicksburg to the north. I think that it's also worth mentioning that going back to Memphis is certainly going to be something that he really wants to avoid because he's afraid he's going to be replaced or lose his command. Otherwise, we have the capability of being able to look back on how things worked out in the end and how Grant is going to eventually become the overall commander of the Union armies. And that's all well and good, but we need to think more about their perspective at the time. And we see all these generals that have been removed because they failed to deliver or otherwise failed, right? McClellan's a big example. He fails to deliver. John Pope gets beaten and he fails as well. Burnside has failed. Don Carlos Buell is another one we can list. So there are all these examples that Grant has at his disposal where even if there's inactivity that doesn't produce results, there's going to be some negative outcomes for his career potentially so we do need to keep that in mind as well we will not spend too much time going over the operations to flank vicksburg to the north because they all ended in failure porter would steam his gunboats through the swamps in an effort to get at the yazoo river the movement had his forces backtrack all the way to helena arkansas making it certainly one of the widest flanking maneuvers of the war this is all while the canal work is being conducted, not only at DeSoto Point across from the bluff, but also Lake Providence, being conducted by James McPherson and his men. Being able to bypass men and supplies around the strong rebel guns was important, of course. Porter would run into trouble first as he made his way to the Tallahatchie River, which would run into the Yazoo once combined with the Yalabusha. Don't worry, I'm going to try to find a map to make things more clear. Certainly when I was researching this, I don't necessarily know where the Yalabusha River is off the top of my head, so I don't expect you to either. So hopefully that gets posted to uh, the Wix site and the mobile app as well. Unfortunately for the Federals, Confederates under William Wing Loring had established a fortification approximately where these two waterways met, and it was strong. Being not yet spring, the ground was flooded, so there was no way to assault the rebels and guns, and would make things hard on the crammed ironclads. Due to this restriction on the capability of the ironclads to maneuver, it was possible if the Confederates had acted quickly, they may have been able to capture the gunboats and supplies, and maybe cripple a campaign before it really got going. Timely troops arrived from Sherman, which would dissuade them. Steele's Bayou was another attempt to reach the Yazoo, this time utilizing the Sunflower River. It would have the same amount of success, grinding to a halt. Grant would grow tired of these movements. The bolder course of action was going to be needed to bring victory for the Union. On March 29th, he would instruct John McClernand's corps to begin making a road from Milliken's Bend south so they could find a good spot to cross the Mississippi and begin campaigning in earnest on the eastern side. This is going to lead to the end of April, and see May as a Civil War blitzkrieg, Grant's troops traveling some 200 miles in the process, eventually leading them to the gates of Vicksburg, so stay tuned. 
we can go ahead and call it a day right there. This week, we talked about action in North Carolina, as D.H. Hill is going to be acting in support of Longstreet and his Suffolk campaign that's going to be happening here shortly. We also talked about the Richmond bread riots and showed that the populace of the southern states is not going to be content with impressment in general, nor will they be content with hardships that are made by war. Finally, we kicked off the Vicksburg campaign, setting that up so that we can have our own little blitzkrieg here in May. Next week, we are going to head to Charleston Harbor for some continued action there. Most importantly, though, we do also need to kick off our second campaign that I mentioned at the top of the episode. We need to set up what many have dubbed as Robert E. Lee's greatest battle, the Battle of Chancellorsville. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback's always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.